0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online
1: resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics, for teachers, students, and citizens. Welcome, everyone, to the first um,
2: TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar of the new year. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. The webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Um, TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics, providing a number of resources for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, Associate Professor of Political Science and History, and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. Uh, some of you have joined us before for those of you who are joining us for the first time uh, let me mention that that the theme of our webinar series this year is landmark Supreme Court cases and we try to pull together some thoughtful scholars we've got two very thoughtful gentlemen joining us today to have a about an hour-long conversation about some important Supreme Court cases and I encourage all of you to participate in that conversation today in our conversation by submitting questions in the chat box feature. I see uh, John has already submitted one. We'll try to get to that one as soon as possible. And we'll try to get to as many uh, questions as possible. So please feel free to submit your questions um, uh, through the chat feature. In the next week you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of your participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. And um, as always we, Try to supplement our uh, our topics with documents and readings from our extensive document database available also at tah.org. And you can check that out, out if you haven't so already. Today we're discussing the Miranda v. Arizona case, and I'm happy to have with us today Jeff Stickenga, my colleague here at Ashland University, and Stephen Tootle of the College of the Sequoias, who was just telling me that he's getting rain for the first time in, did you say eight years, Stephen? Something like that. Getting rain for the first time in who knows how long, uh, where he's at. But thanks to both (laughs) of you for joining us this morning. And uh, let's just jump right into it. If you don't mind. And I thought maybe we'd start with Jeff. If you don't mind, can you explain to us um, why, what is the significance of this case? Um, Maybe in terms of however you want to frame it, the, the, the constitutional, um, or the effect it has on our understanding of constitutional rights or the role of the Supreme Court sure. the significance
0: of the case. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know the way that the, this court case has become significant is, uh, unlike a lot of Supreme Court cases, it's had as much significance in popular culture as it has had in uh, constitutional law. Uh, it's had as much, it's really had as much effect in society, popular culture, you know, law and order would be impossible without Miranda. Uh, all of, A lot of these kind of TV shows, and in fact, it, that's not a small thing. We see it take on that kind of significance when we get to the court's decision in 2000 in Dickerson v. U.S., um, the importance of Miranda as a, a it, way well, it's permeated American society. It's very rare for Supreme Court cases, especially in criminal procedure, to kind of go outside the bounds of police and lawyers and courts and into the greater society. Miranda is a decision that has definitely done that. So, as far as it's just ordinary social, historical, cultural, and political significance, um, it's, it's one of the biggest cases of the last 50 years for sure. And I think um, the, the other thing that strikes me is it its its importance has sometimes kind of in even in scholars minds clouded its meaning constitutionally so i think it's one of the handful of cases uh, marbury v madison brown v board and others that have had this kind of massive Amer- public effect in the way americans think about society and the constitution but it's also been mythologized a lot, and and to my mind, you know, a couple of questions have always come up in thinking about this case, because the mythology is that it's a landmark case because it was completely revolutionary decision that established a clear bright line rule that affects the way that police and the way that police interact with um, uh, citizens in society. And it has established that, and it did that in one fell swoop, and after that, everything was set and settled. That's the impression you get when you, uh, you know, again, watch TV shows or movies. That's not really the truth. So I think, to my mind, the question is, was it really a revolutionary decision? How revolutionary was it? And um, did it set such a clear, unambiguous precedent that everybody has accepted since 1966?
2: way to start this and it it goes right to John's question which he submitted which is with the commonality of the Miranda warning and everyday culture movies literature everyday knowledge is the Miranda warning still relevant Um, it seems doesn't it seem that so Jeff if I understand your point the public thinks it's relevant as it understands things through sort of popular culture at least right I mean in every movie that you watch that that tries to take itself seriously any crime drama or police drama or any show having to do with this when somebody's arrested they have to a Miranda warning and so in the popular mind it's just become non disputed in, in a sense that this is the way it is and this is how it works but I, but are you, are you suggesting that the courts and the law and, and uh, law enforcement no, in general they don't it's not as cut and dry as the public thinks it is is that what you're suggesting
0: absolutely it's it's it is not as cut and dry it was not as cut and dry when it was handed down it was not as cut and dry from 1966 to 2000 and it <clears throat> hasn't been frankly that cut and dry since 2000 the fundamentals of the decision have remained intact and and still do govern the way police departments operate the way especially police departments train officers the way that courts and lawyers operate in the judicial process. But, you know, things like in 1968, we kind of forget this. Miranda seems like a very popular decision now. But in 1968, Congress passed the um, Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, which explicitly said that the old standard for deciding whether a confession was coerced, which was the totality of circumstances, um, doctrine that the court had articulated prior to 1966, Congress explicitly passed a law that said that will be the rule for federal courts. So they just said Miranda only applies to state courts, and whatever it means there, in federal courts, Congress is going to pass a law that says the old standard still applies. Richard Nixon ran in 1968 uh, 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 in part on this decision, attacking the Supreme Court for being what he called soft on crime. And he he campaigned explicitly. I mean, he had known Earl Warren for a long time, back from California politics in the 1950s. And he made it a centerpiece of his opposition, of his campaign, and was his opposition to the Supreme Court, in particular, the Miranda decision. So Congress repudiated the decision. Uh, a presidential candidate, two years after it's handed down, runs against the decision, and a lot of courts after 1966, federal courts, including the Supreme Court, in many ways chipped away and chipped away and chipped away at the decision, um, around the edges, at least. So it wasn't an enormously popular decision with law enforcement, with courts, and with judges. Um, and, and again, that's part of the mythology of the decision.
2: I'm
1: going to jump in at any point. Yeah, well, I, I mean and this i have his response was so thought provoking i now feel like i could monopolize the next 40 minutes with my uh uh, uh comments which is how i, I I'm sorry uh, in advance um uh, almost everything you said was thought provoking um it because to to me the Miranda case had always been um uh, now i'm starting to doubt myself you know now that I, now that uh You know, we're in the current political climate. Uh, Is is this one of those days? Is this one of these times where as a historian, um, uh, I'm a hammer and everything looks like a nail? You know, why is everything fitting into the same prism or am I seeing a trend that is real? You know, Um, and um, I think one of the, for me, the role that the Miranda case had typically played, because I hadn't thought about it. In a in a deep and meaningful way for for many years um, was in one of my hobbies was uh, pointing out fake history you know and uh, these 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 things in history that were stories that were so good that um, that no one bothered to ever fact check them and there are these incidents instances in the past and and people just sort of take them and run with them and one of them was that Eisenhower somehow against um the Brown decision because of what he said about Earl Warren that appointing Earl Warren was the biggest damn fool mistake he'd ever made. And um that was that's that quote is in a lot of standard US history textbooks in order to indicate that Eisenhower was opposed to civil rights. Well nothing could be further from the truth. Um Eisenhower was uh and this is so easily provable Uh, If you just look at his memoirs, which were published after he left office, he praises Earl Warren, he praises the civil rights record, he praises all that. That quotation came from after uh, a series of pro, uh, Eisenhower would probably be fine with this, calling them pro-criminal court decisions and Miranda was kind of the icing on the cake of these uh, decisions that a lot of people saw as pro-criminal. The social context of these Supreme Court cases, though, um, and this is what I liked about uh, uh, Jeff's answer was, you, you know, the you're never you're never too far away from culture, and when you have a Supreme Court that is issuing what he what uh, Professor Sackinger rightly said was stuff that uh, you know could be seen as adjustments here or there, some were revolu- less revolutionary than others. Um, The problem is the context that you're dropping them into and the context that you're dropping them into is that the violent crime rate in the United States had stayed pretty much the same for all of American history up until 1960 and then in 1960 violent crime started rising by 20 percentage points every single year and it pretty much went up between 1960 and then my junior year in high school. Uh, 1991 was the kind of the peak of of a violent crime so you know here we are uh uh, uh on my birthday uh, not my actual birthday but the court decisions ended down june uh 13th 1966 and um you know we're we're six years into a bunch of people a bunch of regular americans experiencing something that no generation of Americans had ever experienced before. Year after year increases in the rates of violent crime. If the Supreme Court had issued these, um, uh, these rulings when violent crime was going down <laughs> or it was stabilized, I don't know that it would be as controversial, but it seemed to represent um, for most people this, this complete and utter disconnect between what regular people were experiencing and not just experiencing, but not, they were experiencing that This is the other important aspect of it. They weren't just experiencing it in newspapers anymore. And it wasn't just their local newspapers. They were experiencing stories about violent crime on television. And it was coming to them and there are three networks and it was coming to them every single night. And so um, it, if you were alive in the mid to late 1960s, and you're watching the nightly news, you would think the world was going to hell in a handbasket and that the Supreme Court was just fiddling while Rome burned. Uh, So that's, I should probably stop there and save some of my uh, other comments, but um, uh, just um, he's absolutely right to point out the the cultural context of this. uh, You just really can't overstate. Um, And then I just do agree with what he said about uh, oh, one questioner asked, why do we call it the Miranda case and the Miranda rights? And that's because this is the case where uh, they actually spell out the four things that you have to say. So that's why it becomes famous. And the guy, Miranda himself, what was interesting, the case, they didn't make it uh, retroactive. So he was actually tried again and he was convicted and then he was let out and people would have him go and sign their Miranda cards. That, you know, But then um, in what is a of irony tragedy uh he's later stabbed in a bar fight by a guy who uh isn't convicted because he wasn't mir- properly mirandized so the guy who kills miranda uh gets away with it um, uh, so uh, of yeah, yeah anyway yeah,
2: yeah that's Steven, i'm glad you i'm glad you brought that up because um Again, the 1960s, as you point out, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty volatile time, it's a very volatile time in terms of so- social uh, upheavals and changing social norms and expectations. I, I was wondering, maybe either of you could answer this. How, how closely watched was this case as it went to, to the Supreme Court? Uh, or maybe, would you, do you think that the decision of the court was in uh, accordance with what Lincoln called sort of public legal expectation um, is this what the public expected from the court, or is
0: that is it, that's just too hard to answer? Um, that is a hard question. Go ahead. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, the only thing I would add to what Stephen said originally there is, um, you know, the court, uh, ordinary Americans might have thought that the court was fiddling around while Rome burned. I think, you know, certainly Nixon and a lot of other people thought that the court helped light the match or fanned the flames of Rome burning with these kind of decisions. Um, you know, we, get, we have a lot of decisions that are famous now that come out of the court, 1961, MAP v. Ohio, where the court extends the exclusionary rule to the states, uh, Gideon v. Wainwright in 1963, right, um, and Malloy v. H- Malloy v. Hogan was the case in 1964, which people sometimes forget, but it, that was really the case that incorporated the Fifth Amendment against the states through the 14th Amendment, and then Escobedo Um, case v. v, Illinois in 1964, where the court said that uh, you do have a right to an attorney once you're a suspect, which really laid the predicate for the Miranda decision. So if you're following the Warren court, if you mean legal, Chris, if you mean legal public expectation in the sense of the expectation of lawyers and judges, and certainly the hope of a number of lawyers and judges, I don't think Miranda, Miranda was sort of the next step in the court's jurisprudence along these lines that people could see was sort of coming, even if ordinary Americans would not have been expecting it, following it, the particular case. You know, to my mind, the totality of circumstances rule, which is what the court had had adopted, well, really since the 1930s and 40s and developed in the 50s and 60s, only when uh, Arthur Goldberg replaces Felix Frankfurter in 1962 do you finally have a majority on the court that will kind of go the way that chief justice wants the court to go? So, you know, why don't you get Miranda earlier when the court court, you know, crime rates are lower? Well, partly because of the character, the makeup of the justices on the court, you just didn't have enough justices who would have supported such a bright line rule. You know, as late as 1959, um, the court had held, uh, 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 upheld the totality of circumstances doctrine and said that people certain people were not permitted um, police could deny people an attorney um, depending on when it was in nineteen fifty eight they said if you have a college education and some legal training, if you were denied an attorney during questioning, that was fine If it was nineteen fifty nine they said if it was three o'clock in the morning, then it's not fine. totality of circumstances. And justices had accepted that and kind of worked it out on a case-by-case basis, and Felix Frankfurter was a very strong advocate for that approach. So you get a new administration, the Kennedy administration, you get new justices appointed, and you get replaced. (laughs) Then you get these predicate cases in 1964 that lead us up to Miranda. So if you're paying attention to the change in personnel and and the way the court's doctrine has been evolving, it's probably not such a shock, this case. But but to the ordinary public that's not following it and experiencing what Steve was saying, I think it is quite a shocking case. And it was definitely used by Nixon in 68, <clears throat> and not just Nixon, um, to attack the court as being out of sync with what the Constitution and what the public expected.
1: Right. And I would just add to that, you know, um, there is a tendency that people have um, – Uh, and I don't know if this uh, this isn't unique to anybody, to confuse activity with accomplishment, right? One of the problems of our era, right? And merely passing a law or um, uh, issuing a Supreme Court uh, judgment does not change the culture overnight. And so if you have some policeman who is using, uh, you know, enhanced interrogation methods you know beating suspects uh in order to extract confessions and the supreme court in other words on june 14th th- that policeman is still going to work uh so um it doesn't necessarily so for the for those for those reasons sometimes these these changes can seem a little bit silly right or procedural as one of the questioners has said you know are we just gonna you know mockingly read someone their rights and then beat a confession out of them or something and um one of the other questions came doesn't the criticism of miranda chip away at a common value and i would say um it, this represents a very interesting time for both the democrats and the republicans from a political theory standpoint and excuse me my two uh, po- political scientist colleagues over there. I'm I'm a mere historian, so. Uh, but to my mind, it represents a very interesting um, uh, departure for the Republican Party, because I, I I think that during the 1960s the Republican Party, uh, there was some part of it that was still in many ways the party of Lincoln. Uh, and I and by by that I mean. They really, Lincoln was not just a figurehead to him, to to them. And if you you read, for instance, one of the documents, I think I'm going to add to the Teaching American History uh, website soon, is Eisenhower's speech to the Republican Convention in 1964, where he specifically addresses how you should feel about, you know, criminals and stuff like that. But, um, for, for people like Dwight Eisenhower, born in the last century, right? He was born in 1890. He's, he was a Lincoln Republican, and he understood what that meant and all of its constitutional implications. But for a lot of younger people, uh, younger Republicans, I, they often paid lip service to the Lincoln legacy, but uh, you get the feeling they sometimes didn't mean it. And where I see this coming out in the Miranda case is... Um, Earl Warren is a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower is a Republican, and Republicans have a very uh, interesting relationship with the law because of the Civil War. Um, The uh, uh, Republicans had always understood American law as being the Lincoln's apple of gold, right? It's the Declaration and the Constitution. But sometime in the 1960s, Republicans started talking more about the Constitution and less about the Declaration. And nowadays, you really hear a lot more about the Constitution than you do the Declaration. And that has, and it leads to some confusion of just about, about what, you know, conservatism is, or, or, you know, the, and it leads to, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas being so confusing to to some legal scholars because he seems to be so willing to Throw, throw out precedent when making a decision. But to me that seems very traditionally Republican. So that there's a so this is happening on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, as the Port Huron statement would indicate, you have this split between liberals, socialists, and the left where those distinctions are getting blurred. And these these things all kind of come together in the Miranda case. So the problem with the Miranda case is not necessarily that it protects the rights of victims right? or protects the rights of criminals, right? That's fine. The problem comes with the fact that Earl Warren actually wrote out directions. In, in, other, in other words, this is one of the clearest cases, to my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, of what's called legislating from the bench. You know, There was pending legislation that was coming from Congress, and it was all cut off. By the Miranda decision uh, and instead of waiting for Congress to legislate this issue the Supreme Court literally set down instructions for um, uh, for the police to follow so that's that's why it, it becomes uh, one of the many reasons it becomes contentious not just because it was quote-unquote makes it harder to convict um, and the uh, I guess the other well I'll say I'll, I'll save the rest I've probably rambled on for too long but uh, uh, that that's another thing I've always found interesting. Stephen, let
2: me can I ask you a question? Yeah. In light of what you just said. So the court, and, and I'm going back to uh, Lyle's really interesting question, right? Which was um, I'm rewording it a little bit. Isn't isn't um, the Miranda decision important to support or uh, uh, preserve the uh, and promote the idea that someone's innocent until proven guilty um, the, the court and Jeff can please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong on this as well but the court at least Warren makes an argument uh, that's based on a particular interpretation of the Fifth Amendment and he does look at the language of the Fifth Amendment but he doesn't of course as you're pointing out Steve uh, Steven uh, he doesn't go beyond that to sort of uh, more fundamental questions of of the the understanding of liberty that the Fifth Amendment is meant to preserve, right? So I think right. if I'm understanding you correctly, this is a case where Warren is willing to go to the Constitution, but not beyond. Is this is this is this um, not beyond that to, to 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 the Declaration? So is that pretty? Is this is about the time when that starts to happen more frequently? Um,
1: well, Warren went not just he he went to weird places too. I mean. Uh, it, it, I almost feel like we don't have enough time to get into some of these issues, but there are a lot there. Are, there are a lot of disagreements about where you can find precedents and uh, legal precedents. And some people believe you can pull them out of thin air. Some people believe you need to pull them out of today's thin air. Some people believe it's okay to reach back into uh, you know uh, ancient history. Uh, some people believe that you need you know you need to go back to only the year one thousand or something. So. How you feel about that is largely a political issue. Uh, to my mind, um, I, I guess my own partisan belief system is that the American system of justice should be based on, uh, this is my, again, partisan belief, but um, should be based on the, the the Constitution of the United States as interpreted by, uh, uh, the declaration so if you have a question about what the Constitution means you look to the declaration right uh, and you, and pretty much you don't go any further back than that you don't go any but you also don't go any further forward which means I mentioned Clarence Thomas that's why I like Clarence Thomas so much um, but uh, uh, it, it, other people feel differently <laughs> and Earl <laughs> Earl Warren felt like he knew what the right thing to do was and so he, he just went back and found stuff that justified what he wanted to do, which is a very, I would say, dangerous way to um, uh, to um, uh, talk about the Supreme Court. You know, I, I know, I, you know, I know what I want to do. Let me go find the precedent for it. It's kind of the opposite of what you're trained to do as a historian. Maybe that's why it's uh, you know, offensive to me.
0: <laughs> Can I <clears throat> let me just add to that? Um... What Stephen was saying there—that uh, you know—and you see after the crime explosion, especially the mid, from you know mid '60s to to mid '70s, you see the court actually chipping away at Miranda. Again, people kind of think, oh yeah, Miranda settled a precedent. American society got on board. The police got on board. Presidents got on board. Congresses got on board. Courts got on board, and everything. The Miranda ship just sailed, and everything was fine. Um, you know, the, including the Supreme Court, starting in the early 70s, especially in the mid-70s, with um, Nixon appointees um, coming on board fully, uh, the court started chipping away at Miranda. And one of the ways that it did it was to hold that Miranda, all the specific words that um, uh, Warren wrote out there, you know, you have the right to remain. all those particular warnings um, were really just a procedural Ruling to ensure due process under the Fourteenth Amendment, they were not themselves a specific constitutional right. So, so the they they started saying, well, you don't have to say it exactly like that. And 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 the question is, when do you have to say it? When are people in custody? When is someone being com? When is there a situation of coercion or compulsion? And without overturning Miranda, courts. And legislatures, frankly, started chipping away at this. So, you know, still well into the 70s, when police training starts, starts actually taking up the idea of Miranda warnings, and that's when it really becomes effectualized in society, when the police start being trained this way. So the old guys, as, as Stephen was saying, who had been on their force since the 1940s and just kept things doing things the same way, that starts changing in the 70s, but different states had different rules, for what police had to say to suspects and sometimes they were written out by the states most often they were actually left to local police departments themselves to write things up and you'd be amazed at the variety of of warnings and the way in which police were trained was really varied from state to state and locality to locality and some some places followed miranda precisely to the letter some places stretched Oh, as far away from Miranda as they could possibly get without getting in too much tr- trouble. So, uh, you know, there there was in part because no one under no lots of people sort of resented the what they regarded as legislation from the bench by Earl Warren and writing these things out, and a lot because legal scholars actually said it's not clear if the specific words are actually binding precedent. Or if they're just sort of dicta that the court is saying, this will be helpful for you in in making sure the self-incrimination right is protected. So it it didn't settle these things, and it wasn't universally embraced even by courts that chipped away and chipped away and chipped away, frankly, until you get to the 2000 in the Dickerson case, which is why we had folks take a look at that, because you know by 2000 you actually get some a police uh, uh department that's willing to say we don't even think miranda was constitutionally correct
2: yeah is that the first case challenging the constitutionality of the miranda decision
0: um flat on straightforward prim- prima facie challenge yeah right. oh
2: <laughs> but but, Dicker- but dickerson upheld miranda right that's right so but did it chip away at it in some way at the same time or did it
0: well, it, it put it this way: What it did, it, it reaffirmed that the, it, it, it sustained the previous chipping away and it allowed for more chipping away without gutting the core of the ruling, which is you do have to tell people they have the right to remain silent. you do. but the way you say it doesn't have to be precise. And again, in, in, in a later case in 2003 or four, Clarence Thomas actually, for a, it was a five-four decision. But Clarence Thomas held that, look, this is just a, this decision is, uh, Miranda was a prophylactic warning, as he called it, to protect against violations of the self-incrimination right. Miranda warnings are not themselves a right. They are warnings necessary to protect a right. So you don't have to abide strictly by Miranda in order to protect the right. I see
2: okay and that helps address a question uh, I think uh, anyway that Billy submitted earlier about um, the the courts call for procedural safeguards right so they're not so so you don't have a constitutional right to be Miranda, so to speak but the the warning that you're supposed that's supposed to be given is, is kind of like a fence or a procedural safeguard to better protect the constitutional right that's protected in the fifth amendment when yes, it the right way? that's right.
0: That's right. That's right. And so, so some kind of Miranda-like thing is required. But you're right. The way you put it is a nice way. As a fence to protect the actual right, it's not the right itself. Now, it's not clear what if Warren actually meant that. He actually left it ambiguous. Is this? Are these warnings a constitutional right in and of themselves? But courts said, later courts said no, and even when the court reaffirmed the constitutional status of Miranda and Dickerson, it never said that it was a right. So three years later, Clarence Thomas can get a majority to say, it's not a right, it's just a, a procedural requirement.
2: I uh, mentioned that Scalia's dissent in Dickerson apparently argues something along the same lines. Uh, procedures themselves are not constitutional rights.
0: That's right. Okay. Um, Can I just add that that means that what what this case is really centered on then is um, what does due process of law mean under the 14th Amendment? That is as much as important in understanding the Miranda decision and why it was so kind of understood flexibly as opposed to what specifically is the right to not be compelled to be a witness against oneself. the the question of due process of law and the vagaries of what that means is just as important in understanding Miranda as understanding the self-incrimination right.
2: I see. So Jeff, so you've you've raised some questions um, that may be tangential but 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 that I think are related. So Candy, for example, wants wants to know can you can you help us understand the difference between procedural and substantive? I assume it would be due process. This is a case involving procedural due process, right? But not substantive due process. Or is it both?
0: Well, it has flavors of both. That was really the argument. Which one is it? (laughs) In nineteen sixty-six, it seemed like the Warren Court was sort of doing what Stephen said, which is legislating from the bench not only a a procedural right, but also a substantive right. These warnings, you must these are now a constitutional right. They never quite said it, but it seemed kind of like that's what they were doing. What's interesting is a lot of police departments took them to be saying that, and did in fact start, as I said before, training police officers in exactly with little the Miranda cards that had exactly the, that wording on it, train them how to use it. But it's not again not clear that that's in fact what the court said. It never said it specifically. Scalia brings that up in his dissent. Um, the difference is that you know uh, procedural rights would be. Uh, covered under Fourteenth Amendment due process of law. So, what process are you due as you move through the criminal justice system from the very first point of contact to the very end? That's the procedural, the whole spectrum of procedural rights. The substantive rights would be things like freedom of speech or freedom of religion um, or um, right to counsel. Those are substantive rights that are in specifically in the Bill of Rights. And the court ever since, well, way back since the late 19th, well, 19th century with things like the slaughterhouse cases where the court started making up substantive due process rights and made those up and used that to incorporate specific parts of the Bill of Rights against the states, which developed over a long period of time. So they incorporated both procedural rights um, for, for criminal stuff and then specific enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. And even to this day, it's called selective incorporation, as I'm sure a lot of people know. But And some justices have argued for total incorporation. So all procedural and substantive rights should apply against the states, as well as against the federal government. Some people have argued uh, for selective incorporation. And that's kind of the path the court has taken so that these rights, procedural or substantive, kind of get incorporated or applied against the states over time in different cases bring it on and then there's adjustments made back and forth and even to this day there are some specific parts of the bill of rights that have not been applied against the states or very recently so the second amendment right was only applied against the states in 2010 in um mcdonald v. chicago so that there it's been a long kind of fraught history <laughs> from the, from 1860 you know eight all the way up to the current
2: right and even first the, the First Amendment rights with regard to um, religious free exercise of religion and, um, and establishment I, I know the court really didn't start touching those things until early in the 20th century and then it sort of was piecemeal but yeah that's interesting I I hope that helps address Larry's question because Larry specifically asked about uh, the, the, the importance of the 14th
0: Amendment in, in, in this case, so I hope that- Yeah, can I, I just answer one more thing Please. specifically about Larry's uh, question, because he asked um, about uh, the legal argument that could justify the Bill of Rights not applying to the states, especially like the 14th Amendment. Well, um, a lot of scholarship has been done on this question. Was it the original in, uh, intent or meaning of the 14th Amendment to apply the Bill of Rights against the states? And there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, it was the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, people like John Bingham, who drafted it, congressman from Ohio. On the other hand, it was a, a lot of scholarship also suggests that it wasn't going to be done through the Due Process Clause, that it was done through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was the first part of the Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which we don't hear about anymore. Because the Supreme Court made a ruling in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873 saying, no, no, that's not really what it meant. So after that, they had to get at that problem of incorporation through the 14th Amendment, not through what seems like the most obvious route, which is states can't deny uh, privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, to which you could turn to the text of the Constitution or even to principles of the Declaration of Independence and find out what those are instead they you have to go through this sort of indirect route of um due process of law part of the 14th amendment so there have been some scholars since then uh people like Randy Barnett at Georgetown Law School who have argued that privileges and immunities clause needs to be recovered by the court to reestablish jurisprudence on a, on a firmer foundation a clearer application of it to the 14th uh, through the 14th amendment to the states but it's it hasn't gotten much traction uh, in in court itself,
2: right? Yeah, no. I remember reading pieces by Randy Barnett. I think I think he's the one who, among others, who made who pointed out that one of the initial sort of motives for the for the Fourteenth um, Amendment uh, uh, privileges and immunities clause was the fact that a lot of former slaves uh, after the Civil War were being denied the right to um, to bear arms, to own firearms um, in, in a lot of former slave states, and especially at a time when they were. Um, being terrorized by white supremacist groups and the rise of the KKK, and, and one of the one of the not the simple, not the single, but one of the original motives of, of the 14th Amendment was to ensure that that former slaves, uh, African Americans, in, in a lot of Southern states, could have could exercise the right to bear arms for the purposes of defense. But that would be an example, I think, of where it would fall under the um, the privilege, the, the the idea that it's meant to. Per, uh, protect equal access to the privileges and immunities.
0: Yeah. Uh, if you want, if people want to read two different two books with very different perspectives on this question, um, one one would be by Randy Barnett. Uh, his a very recent one called Our Republican Constitution, um, and the second one uh, would be a very famous book called um, Government by Judiciary by Raoul Berger, B E R G E R. Those are two books that kind of have um, contrasting views on whether whether or not the 14th Amendment was meant to Im- incorporate all the uh, rights protected under the U.S. Constitution against the states, and if so, how should it be done? Should it be done by courts, and is that a good thing if it is done by courts? They have very different views on those, but I encourage people to take a look at them. What's but the certainly Miranda cases, the Miranda case itself comes is just one more application of this doctrine of incorporation now on this question of uh, what does it mean to not be compelled to be a witness against oneself or what it means to have due process of law under the 14th Amendment? I
2: see. Jeff, what was the name of the burger book again?
0: Uh, Government by Judiciary.
2: Thank you. I'm just typing it in the chat box so
1: people sure. can look these up. Um, we, we had another question there but back about whether the Miranda case was a a litmus test much like the Fort Huron statement and I thought well that's actually an interesting way of approaching both documents because in many ways they are a litmus test I I never really thought about it that way so it was an excellent question because like the Miranda case you stick it under somebody's nose and um, you, you, you run it up the flagpole and see who salutes Right. You stick the Miranda case under somebody's nose and see what they say about it and you'll know a lot about that person. And you stick the Fort Huron statement under somebody's nose and and uh <laughs> if they read it and like it, uh you're you're gonna learn a lot about that person. Uh, I have a we have a friend, Tom Brasino, who has his uh one step patriotism test, which is a. Uh, if you want to know if somebody's patriotic you you ask them and it, and if it takes them more than 3 seconds to answer the answer is no uh so uh, there there are these kind of litmus tests i i'm and uh it, I, I like that i i like that as a um, and i might incorporate that into my classes and in, the, in the, 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 the i've been i've been struggling to find something uh, to excite me about that uh, that very question, so maybe this will be the uh, how I do it in the in the spring. Um, <clears throat> but does anybody have uh, more on that? Uh, um, any any further questions on that in that regard?
2: Well, here's a question that just, that just came in, Stephen. I'm not sure if you can see it from Daniel. Uh, is Miranda even necessary today, given the overwhelming emphasis in pop culture? As we were discussing earlier, is an American society so aware of their rights that they know to invoke their right to remain silent?
1: Well, that was used. Uh, Jeff, I'm sure can cite the the case, but that was used in one of the subsequent cases, which is it's so permeated society that um, you know the the actual procedure itself has become somewhat redundant. But I, that does remind me of one of the thoughts I had uh, as we were talking about the case that that. We have to remember sometimes that no matter how nuanced and thoughtful um the Supreme Court is in making a, a statement and then and then making these you know very nuanced um uh, carve outs and, and 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 clarifications um, pop culture and partisan politics are hatchets <laughs> they they are bludgeons You know, uh, once something enters into pop culture, you know, once my dad's coffee group is talking about it, you can be sure that there is no nuance, right? Because there's a bunch of seventy five year old men in a McDonald's somewhere who are who are holding down, holding court, and letting you know how how things really are, and um, uh, let's just say a lot of the nuance has escaped them. Uh, So, so for them, uh, it's like like uh, as just said, it's much more of a uh, uh, it's much more of a landmark case. Right. And, and as he said, pop culture. And then once it enters the, the, the realm of partisan politics, forget about it. You know, uh, it doesn't do anybody any good for Richard Nixon to 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 to, to hone. And finally, you know, no, it's uh, I'm I'm anti criminal. And if you're not with me, you're pro criminal. Right. That's it. I, I, that, that's how that that's how that enters popular culture. I mean, yeah. um, and let's. It's important to understand. You know, uh, there are consequences to having a democracy. <laughs> you know, uh, and that is that everyone gets to weigh in, and this these decisions they wash up to them, and they wash down, and then they wash back up again. And um, I, I, one of the things that uh, growing older will do for you is. Um, You'll, uh, you'll, you'll start hopefully getting less excited about things. Because uh, <laughs> uh, you've seen some of this before. That's very but, interesting. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go, no, that's just fine. I was just oh, thinking I agree. I agree. how much of this is just purely demographic. You know, just the, the, just the fact that almost all violent crime is committed by males aged 17 to 25. And if you look at the violent crime rate and when the baby boomers were hitting those ages of 17 to 25, it happens to be during this period. Like, and uh, I mean, it's a nice thing about being a historian, I guess, is we can always look back at that and say, oh, look, there's a trend they should have you know, <laughs> seen, but get, you know, give them a break. They, you can't know everything when you're actually living your life. As I remind my students all the time, the people of the future will condemn you for something, you just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's well put. Yeah, that's right. But
2: by the way, Stephen, a lot of what you were just saying reminded me. Of, it made me think of what. Um, Jeff, I know you just taught a course on Tocqueville, right? It sounded very uh, uh, sort of in line with Tocqueville's understanding of, of how popular opinion and democracies work. But uh, maybe that's a big, bigger topic. Um, but, uh, but Stephen, if you don't mind, can I ask a couple of follow-up questions? Earlier we mentioned, you mentioned that the Miranda case um, was decided at a time of dramatic, uh, dramatically increased crime rate. Uh, crime rates. Was there also, uh, I want to kind of flip that around, is there any evidence to suggest that there was an increase in the kinds of um, interrogations, or shady, maybe even violent, interrogation techniques used by police. so This
1: is one of those things, I mean, this is why I like, I mean, I, I like I said, I have a particular, I have a lot of quirks when it comes to my study of history, uh, which is nice, because once you have job security, you can do whatever you want. But I'm always fascinated by things like this. Um, so the sort of um, liberal defense of the Miranda case is that it didn't do anything which i was found is sort of strange like it didn't change the conviction rates but and the conservative attack on it is that it didn't do anything it, you know uh in other words the the rate you know but they'll they'll often use the same set of statistics to make the same to make precisely the opposite argument from one another um so yes interrogation techniques changed uh Conviction rates did go down and in particular, they went down in, um, in um, specific urban areas. I, I, I'd have to pull out my, uh, I have a couple of books, uh, but I'd have to pull out to remember what the statistics are, but yes, it did change. But, but the, you know, but, so here's the argument, right? Your, your conservatives come in and say, well, look, conviction rates went down and more violent criminals were hitting the streets. This was also a time when rehabilitation was was very popular, and so violent criminals were also getting released a lot more quickly. Um, so all of that is is true, and repeat offenders were uh, uh, um, were more common. Um, that's true, but liberals, when they point at the trend line, say, "Well, see, the trend line was already going up, and it just continued to go up." So. Uh, it, I guess you from a from a, set aside the Constitution, right? Set aside the Declaration, set aside any principles you might have, and and let's all be uh, strict utilitarians and say, did it work? Um, uh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know uh, yeah, i probably not. I, I, you know, did it, did it, did it actually preserve? did it, did it did it help to preserve somebody's rights probably yeah, it probably did, but did it also have a here's the other thing that's often not factored in uh did it deprive other people of their rights and the answer is yes i you know it's we see this all the time in 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 gun debates where we look at the murder rate but we don't look at the rape rate you know so it's like yeah you can have fewer guns in society but you will have more rapes there's going to be a social consequence for this you know in other words um there there none of this happens in a vacuum so you're, you're so did some criminal defendants um have the have more of their rights defended absolutely uh, absolutely they, they, that and if that's if that is your um Measuring stick and you exclude all other measuring sticks, then you can say it was a success
0: Yeah, and I have to tell you, Can I just can I add to that that that's actually a that really important point um, When Warren was going to write the Miranda opinion he circulated the draft around and if, if people just read the very first sentence of the Miranda opinion he, he Circulated it around and we have a very interesting memo from him and it goes directly to what Stephen was saying The first sentence now says the cases before us raise questions which go to the roots of our concepts of American criminal jurisprudence. The restraints society must observe consistent with the federal constitution in prosecuting individuals for crime. Right. So all the emphasis there is on what will be gained um, in terms of rights for people accused or uh, of crime or being interrogated by police. It's all about the rights. Of those folks in that situation, that wording actually was not his original draft. His his original draft, I'm looking for it right here, um, said that it would be. Um, oh, if I can find, I have this written here. It says it, that it was going to say the role society must assume. Consistent with the federal constitution in prosecuting individuals for crime, as opposed to the restraints society must observe. You can see, right? The original formulation was again. I, I,
1: I'm sorry. Can you repeat that again? I need to get this. Yeah, um, yeah. Say it again a little slower. The,
0: the very first draft that Warren wrote, which he circulated among the court, said in that first sentence that this issue was about quote the role society must assume consistent with the federal constitution in prosecuting individuals for crime. The the final version of the case says, the restraints society must observe in prosecuting individuals for crime. So, not the role society must assume, but the restraints society must observe. It got switched from a more balanced, how do we think about prosecuting individuals to what restraints must there be in, for prosecuting uh, these individuals? or And why that happened, well, he sent it around, and Bill Brennan, William Brennan, had become a very close friend and ally of Warren on the court. He sent the original draft back with over 20 specific recommendations for changes in the language, and that was one of the ones that Bill Brennan suggested. He said, you need to make this a clear statement on behalf of the defense of uh, individuals' rights of people who are in this situation without consideration of the larger social question of ba- how do we balance these rights that society and other individuals in society have versus criminal wow. defendants? That's
2: amazing. Yeah, that explains a
1: lot, actually. Uh, yeah, it, it does. does. I, I did, I'd never heard that before. Uh, yeah. I, need, I, need, I guess I need to pick up a book every now and then, right? Uh, that's good stuff. Uh,
0: uh, it's very interesting. And you can so you see that. And, and look, because we kind of forget uh, two years later, This is the same Earl Warren and the same Warren Court who writes hands down the opinion in Terry v. Ohio for the Terry frisks, right? So Mm -hmm. you have, you know, in 1967, the next year, they have CATS v. U.S., reasonable expectation of privacy, which seems to increase the rights of people um, from law enforcement. But then the very next year, you can they say, well, yeah, but police can pat down. Um, people who they suspect of, of criminal activity without a, without a warrant and really without even probable cause. So this is this Earl Warren's a little more and partly that case is in reaction to the growing furor in 1968 against the court. Um, Warren in fact actually offered to vo- volunteer to LBJ to step down as chief justice. Cause he was thought if Nixon wins, I don't want Nixon appointing my successor. So, uh, <laughs> LBJ put forward Fortis uh, for chief justice, but it didn't go anywhere. So Warren stayed on the court, and then, of course, Nixon won and ended up appointing his successor. So Earl Warren was pretty savvy to the politics of this and, and was a little more balanced in these things than, um, than what the immediate wording of Miranda might suggest. Yeah, that's
2: fascinating. Um, I've always been struck, too, Jeff, by the sense. And how and how this uh, this issue really did create a pretty clear split. What, what was the decision? Uh, was it 6-3? Uh, yeah, six, it, six,
0: six, someone it was kind of five and a half to three and a yeah, half. That's right,
2: because uh, was it, who, somebody dissented in part. And converted part yeah, in part. right,
0: right, right. Exactly.
2: But Harlan mm-hmm. and White took pretty hard lines in their dissents, right? Yes, if I remember correctly, and one of the things yeah. that struck me that strikes me about Harlan's dissent is um, is his criticism that, that Warren, the way Warren um, uh, uh, defends, um, you know, his call for these uh, procedural rights, uh, procedural safeguards, is going to sort of open up the door to more and more opportunities for the court to find right. In the Constitution that that may be there, but but hadn't been brought out, right? So uh, I think Harlan, at the end of his dissent, he ends with he quotes another uh, justice from a previous case where he says, "This court is forever adding new stories to the temples of constitutional law, and the temples have a way of collapsing when one story too many is added." Which I thought
1: was an interesting way to to end this, right? But where does this case
2: fall? I mean, well, first of all, Jeff, is, what do you think of Harlan's criticism here? Is he right? Um, and and then if so, where does this case fall in the sort of expanding tendency of the court to find and extract more and more rights, especially from the Fifth Amendment?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm looking at a paragraph here where he says, in conclusion, this is Harlan's dissent again. He says, in conclusion, nothing in the spirit or letter of the Constitution or in the precedents, square with the heavy-handed and one-sided action that is so precipitously taken by the court in the name of fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities. So it's, yeah, it's a very, um, it's, it's tough language. You don't yeah. often re- read that kind of sharp dissent, especially from a guy like Harlan, who was kind of a moderate. thought of as a. So um, Yeah, that's what's yeah. funny
2: because, because he, Harlan and, and uh, Warren take such different stands on this case, whereas before you would have thought maybe they would have been more in agreement on this
0: and, and they were in, in subsequent cases like the next year in the Katz case. So, you know, <laughs> you can have sharp dis- disagreements on a particular case on the Supreme Court, and then you can go back to being uh, agreeing on lots of other issues. Um, you know, this was... Uh, Again, people have taken this as sort of typical Warren court judicial activism. Um, It's certainly the argument that Justice Scalia makes in his dissent in Dickerson, where he doesn't just criticize the court's ruling in that case, but goes all the way back to Miranda and says, you know, Miranda is an example of the Warren court just making stuff up all the time. Um, I'm not sure that Harlan's dissent, it's sort of prophetic in the sense that there absolutely was blowback against the Warren Court, and against, in particular, this decision, there was that blowback, which we kind of forgotten about now, because, again, we think this has become such a part of American society that no decent person of goodwill could ever oppose the Miranda decision. There was a lot of blowback. I don't think there's been much blowback, though, against this particular case in the sense that, you know, it was upheld it was it, on the margins yes it's been nibbled away at and nibbled away at but it was subsequently reaffirmed police departments essentially follow this for training the american people expected someone asked a question um uh is it even necessary now i think it was um uh, daniel's question is it even necessary now now that everybody knows their right, right to remain silent well they know that, right, because of Miranda and, and and how popular it became out in society and in schools and in pop culture and all the rest. So I think the Miranda decision itself has remained mar- remarkably, to my mind, remarkably um, strong and robust as a precedent over 50 years, even while there's been a general blowback against the way the Warren Court went about things. Think about the arguments that came became really prominent in the 1980s and 90s about returning to the original meaning of the Constitution in, as opposed to uh, contemporary meaning or making it up as you go, which is what Warren was accused of. So there was a larger movement, I think, against the Warren Court politically at the time and then kind of intellectually and jurisprudentially, which has had a huge effect on the Supreme Court, right, even up to this last election where you have people saying, Saying we're not going to confirm. Uh, we're not even going to hold hearings on Garland because we want a, an originalist like Scalia um, to be replaced by an originalist. So it is it, 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 it that that blowback against the Warren Court and what people saw. Some people saw as overreaching definitely um, continues. But Miranda itself has kind of weathered the test of time and remains a, a fundamental precedent. That even if you think it's judicial activism, judicial legislation. Stacy asked, um, how's it being applied in pop culture and partisan politics today? I think you'd be very, it'd be extremely uh, difficult to imagine um, uh, a, par- a major American public figure running a campaign, part of which is based on opposition to the Miranda decision. I, I, I just think it's kind of become accepted as part of the Legal political consensus today, even though the method itself of the Warren Court has been rejected by a lot of people. The same, same people who rejected Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist, the same person who rejected the whole mode of the Warren Court, affirmed the Miranda ruling in person. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You think about, for example, that's a great point that you raised, Jeff. Imagine a candidate running in opposition to this. Um, you know Rudy Giuliani took a lot of a lot of uh, heat for the stop and frisk stuff, right? I believe was it Giuliani?
0: Was he? Still uh, and, and Bloomberg. Mm-hmm.
2: Was Bloomberg? Bloomberg, he, you know, stop and frisk, um, which always surprised me that Bloomberg went ahead with that. But apparently it had some success, but there was a lot of there was a lot of pushback against it. But it kind of died out over time. I think they've stopped doing this, right? Uh, over time. Yeah, under De
0: Blasio, yes.
2: Yeah, under De Blasio. But but how would something like that work? I'm just thinking bigger picture here because Candy, Jeff, you kind of mentioned it. So since you opened this door, Candy, uh, Candy asks about um, the direction the Supreme Court might take in the future with regard to the tenor of the politics that we can expect under under President Trump's administration. Uh, where where do we see Maybe there's two questions here. Where do we see um, what, what what do you again? This is you know I'm asking you to look into your crystal ball here. But where do you see the future of the court going here under Trump? Um, what's the court going to be like? Maybe with regard to this question of being you, you know um, more pro crime or anti crime to use the simple term from Stephen was saying we shouldn't use earlier. Um, yeah. What do you what do you think in general? Just thoughts on this
0: uh if uh, this is the problem of being a political scientist historians can always claim i can't make (laughs) prognostications, and political scientists are always called upon to make years (laughs) yeah
1: i'll tell you in 30 years how i feel about it
0: exactly (laughs) (laughs) they have the virtue of hindsight uh yeah and despite the fact that political scientists are wrong over and over and over again people keep asking um yeah i look The Obama administration itself advanced what they call a public safety exception to Miranda for terrorists, people suspected of terrorist crimes. They said, if we get a terrorist and we have a ticking bomb situation, we are not going to follow Miranda. That was an edict that came down through the Justice Department. So uh, even President Obama, um, look, so the consensus, I still think the consensus holds Miranda is accepted by almost everybody. You do have people like Thomas and Scalia and maybe Scalia's replacement, who will say it it should be overturned, but they don't have the majority. They're unlikely to have the majority for a long period of time. They certainly don't have the majority of sort of public expectation on their sides. Um, On the other hand, you do also have recognition that in certain circumstances and in certain times, Miranda doesn't make sense and you had that argument advanced by the, by even the Obama administration Department of Justice. So um, I, I think you'll see that as far as Miranda specific kinds of things, you'll see that continue. You'll see the exceptions and carve outs that were made to Miranda. Um, on what is compulsion? Is it a procedural? Is it a procedure that you have to follow word for word or not? Well, you don't have to. Um, when, when must it be invoked, all of the very technical specific things, you'll see that trimming of the edges of Miranda continue, but Miranda will go forward in the future and, and, and go on. And I don't think that changes under a president Trump. Um, The other things will change. And, you know, what's interesting about these criminal procedure things, fourth amendment, fifth amendment, sixth amendment is there. It's kind of hard to predict based on the politics or even the judicial philosophy of a Supreme Court justice, how they're going to vote on a particular case. You know, uh, Scalia was, this might surprise people, but he was a very profound, in many ways, a very profound champion of the Fourth Amendment uh, and protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. He himself argued that stop and frisk is unconstitutional. But he just said, but that issue was settled in Terry v. Ohio, and I think that they made the wrong decision, but everybody's accepted it. So he wrote a concurrence in which he said, if I had to go back and vote, I wouldn't have voted for having, I don't think the police do have this authority without probable cause to frisk somebody, to stop, question, and then frisk them without probable cause. He said they have the right to, the authority to stop and question them, and if they don't get the, the, uh, the right answer, if they get a shady answer, then maybe they have probable cause to frisk. So even a guy like Scalia, you wouldn't think, well, no, he's going to be tough on crime and anti-crime. No, in fact, he was um, kind of remarkably robust adherent to the letter and what he understood to be the principles of the Fourth Amendment. So, I, you know, you never know if a President Trump appoints somebody, could they, be a, could they be a tough on crime Justice Alito or a Justice White? Kennedy appointed him and people became shocked. He joins with the dissents in this case that he was thought to be a liberal and he became much more conservative over time, or will President Trump uh, nominate and appoint somebody who ends up being a libertarian type who um, votes along the lines uh, on criminal cases that you would not expect? It's very hard to predict in these kinds of cases how people will side. Nicely done.
2: That's nicely done, Jeff. So,
1: And I do have a rule that says I will never predict what President Trump will do. That's a hard and fast <laughs> rule that I've I've learned uh, already. I've stopped making any predictions with regards to President Trump. And, and I'm sorry, is, I interrupted you, Chris. So what no, were you no, he,
0: I'm sorry, Stephen, but he himself said you shouldn't do that about him, right? Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, but I will say one of the things I was thinking of as Jeff was talking was just the gap between Supreme Court decision and how things are integrated on a, on a sort of local level, right? Uh, and, and you got me thinking about things like when the Black Lives Matter movement uh, really got started and it became this sort of question that people have about what, what are the proper, you know, uh, um, um, proper interactions between police. And I'm reminded that in a lot of communities, my community can't be that atypical. We have a city council. We have a police chief. No one thinks of any of these people as being monsters. And how things happen is that they get together and they have meetings and they say, well, do we need to review our, our uh, procedures? Do we need to, do, should we have body camps? And if you, and our police chief or sort of said, well, we have nothing to hide, you know, uh, and I said, well, where are we going to get the money for body cameras? In other words, it, there's a, uh, the way that this stuff happens at, when the rubber meets the road, when you're actually convicting criminals, when you're putting people in jail, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the differences in how state laws are applied. I, I'm reminded of this. We've such. Um, we've had a few propositions recently that say that in California, at least really only violent criminals go to jail anymore uh, because of prison overcrowding. Uh, or what's called prison overcrowding Uh, and um, and and so you know it's changed the way crimes are prosecuted in uh, at the the state and local level here because you know you know you're not going to prison (laughs) unless you unless you hurt somebody and then you know you're not going to prison for very long but um, the the Supreme Court uh, can make these decisions but It's just so rare that it that it touches something in your own personal life uh, that it becomes news when it does. And and I think that's sometimes important to remember. Um, What's much more likely to touch an individual's life is a criminal getting away with it, (laughs) you know, Until I had friends who were DAs and more friends who were policemen, I didn't realize how many people get away with murder every year in my county. Because, you know, like most people, I watch TV and I think, oh, well, policemen solve murders. Well, no, they don't. You know, the Mexican mafia murders someone and drops them off in a field somewhere. And they go, oh, look at this, another dead Mexican. And then they're buried. And no one ever knows why this person was murdered by the Mexican drug cartel. And I had no idea that that happens Oh All the time. (laughs) You know, I I think of, or, or, you know, but when a specific crime hits a specific area, boy, you better believe that in a town, my city is, uh, I guess, kind of a big city by some standards, 130,000 people. But when violent crime touches someone in the community, everybody knows that person, (laughs) you know, and, and pretty much every resource in that community is then dedicated to finding the perpetrator of that crime <laughs> and um, the sort of niceties of Supreme Court decisions kind of go out the window um, and and that's what I think actually happens in uh, a lot of um, a lot of places in America I, I could be I mean maybe I'm i am uh, overstating what happens in my own community, but um, I just, I like to always remind myself of how these decisions touch reality uh, when all is said and done. Um, so, with regards to making predictions, uh, I predict that things are going to be about like they were before. <laughs> it's always that the easiest prediction. Like
2: that. that's, a, that's a nice way to put it because um, I mean you know, I live in Ashland, smaller community, twenty thousand or so. We had a, a, a very serious um, 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 couple of murders last year. Um, you know, uh, so far, uh, you know, the, the, the person accused of the crimes has been going through the, the pre-trial procedures to determine whether or not he could stand trial and things like this. But so, but the way of, the, the way you're thinking about it, lo- the, the way crime affects local communities, that is, you know, nothing. It seems to me nothing infuriates a local community more then when somebody commits a very, <laughs> a very bad crime in a local community and they get away with it because of a procedural loophole or a procedural thing like they weren't read their Miranda rights. Seems to me that that's where, so what you'll have is on the local level, these little pockets of discontent with things like Miranda when those things sort of happen, you know. But on the other hand, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm playing a little bit here with Brian's interesting question about whether Miranda should ever be overturned given uh, it's the way it protects um, um, uh, certain kinds of criminals who he calls uh, it refers to as sort of easy targets right going ahead I think Americans generally want to protect the innocent right so it's it's a it's a tough thing to balance we want to protect the innocent but we want to make sure the guilty um, are, are, uh, are get what you know get justice um, but I, I do think that um, it's local communities a lot of times that, that would rather have the, the control over these things than having maybe a uniform national rule handed down by a Supreme Court that was, that was inspired not by a law, as you pointed out earlier, Stephen or Jeff, one of you pointed this out. It wasn't that Congress was hearing a case involving a specific statute that Congress had passed, but that they were, they were digging into the Constitution to determine whether a right was there or not, and they handed down a decision. That really established uh, procedural um, uh, or, or procedures that that, uh, that were not initiated by by
1: Congress. But, well, I mean um, One of the things that Eisenhower said in that '64 address that that always hits home for me is, um, you know, the old saying that the thing about common sense is so uncommon, right? Um, but what what Eisenhower said was, "and let us not be guilty of the maudlin sympathy for the criminal." who roaming the streets with a switchblade knife and illegal firearms seeking helpless prey suddenly becomes upon apprehension a poor underprivileged person who counts upon the compassion of our society and the laxness or weakness of too many courts to forgive his offense. Mm -hmm. So Eisenhower, and earlier in the address, he just says, like, we want the laws to protect the innocent, but we want the law also to recognize to punish the guilty and just because someone's been apprehended by the police they don't they don't change (laughs) (laughs) they they don't become uh, a poor underprivileged person who who now we should be sympathetic to like uh, uh, anyway that uh, that would have struck a lot of people as just sort of a common sense distinction yeah i don't know if it still does
2: people are pretty Quick to want to, I mean, you read things in a newspaper. I'm just speculating here, right? But people have a tendency to convict before a trial. Right? Always. Public opinion convicts. So um,
0: maybe that, that, that yeah, goes can back I just to add, to add one last thing to this? Because I know we have to go, but yeah, um, please. I would say that where the Miranda decision and decisions like that do hit the road in public is, yeah, it might not switch public sentiment within these cases in local communities where, like, here in Ashton, where we had these terrible murders or or other senses where people get or are getting away with crime that really uh, uh, against victims that really people i think are innocent and and it's an outrage and 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 to the community and to that family that that that's absolutely true that sentiment builds and then police um may react according to that sentiment but the effect that miranda has in 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 really changing the way police are trained and and anybody knows police officers know that they really do pride themselves on being trained in a certain way and, and following their training. And Miranda has had a profound effect on the way police departments from, you know, from Cleveland to Lorraine to little old Ashland County actually train officers at the academies. And the way that prosecutors operate in dealing with um, folks in dealing with the police and the way defense attorneys deal with the police That you might have a lot of public sentiment and opinion saying, you know, don't let guilty people go free. This is an outrageous crime. Somebody has to pay. But at the same time, you have police and courts trained, according to Miranda, that in a way um, keep them focused on on, on proper procedure or proper constitutional protections as they understand them. And that's a real life thing that really has had a profound effect on the way police interact with people once they're in police custody.
2: That's a great point, Jeff. Great point, I'm glad you're invited.
1: I had a policeman recently describe it to me as, uh, we're just like pilots, we have a checklist. For everything we do, and we just go through and the the way we're training. So you know, however you want it, whatever you want us to do, that's how we're trained, and that's what we follow. I will use a um, a sort of a lefty a, a uh, contemporary lefty term to say that one of the things that um, the Miranda case does is it, it sort of normalizes. To use that's the token lefty term. Uh, it, it it normalizes uh, something in this regard, which is to say, it works out well enough that, you know, in other words, it seems to be such a common sense uh, way of solving this problem. Hey, these people need to know their constitutional rights, so let's just tell them what they are and then get on with our business. It seems to work out so well that we don't tend to question, you know, the underlying legal philosophy behind it. In other words, because it at, because it's been in place for so long that we don't we don't often go back and revisit these issues and say, do we really understand or, or agree with the underlying legal philosophy here or have, have we just accepted it because it's no big deal. <laughs> you know. yeah.
0: and, and I would just say, Stephen, you're right and that that's Thomas and Scalia's criticism of people like Rehnquist and the majority in the Dickerson case. They basically say, yeah, because this constitution seems to have worked out. You're accepting it. It should be rejected on the principle basis and then let local people figure out what the right rule is. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, gentlemen, thank you both. We, we, we're going a little bit over time. I apologize for that. But thanks, thanks to you both for being with us uh, and for yeah, your uh, you. great Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the everybody sticking with us all
1: this time, too.
2: Yeah, yeah. great questions um, and from, the, from our uh, people joining us. So uh, thanks to everybody for another thoughtful and interesting conversation. Yeah. Uh, I understand the case much better than I did an hour and 15 minutes.
1: Ago. Well, and that one thing that Jeff said about the 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 um, you know the, the the text being altered at the last minute, I I, had, I i need to look into that. That's uh that was some good stuff.
0: Well, great great and to the, be here the, everybody. again. Me for my for me too. Thanks for coming.
2: Yes.
1: yes,
0: right.
2: Thanks very much. Let me just mention very quickly. Um, Our next webinar will be February 4th, it'll be on uh, Tinker v. Des Moines. We'll be joined by by Stephen Knott of the United States Naval War College and Scott Yenner of Boise State University. So we should have another lively conversation. Um, You should get uh, an email. Again, just a reminder, you'll get an email with a link for your certificate of participation. And I encourage you to look into our uh, our courses that we offer through our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. we start with documents in those courses. We have conversations. Our online courses are are um, are in some way similar to this, but but even better because everybody has a mic and a camera and everybody can jump into the conversation. They're done entirely uh, synchronously and live. So if you're interested in those, take a look at our course offerings on tah.org. And I look forward to seeing everybody again on February 4th. Until then, take care. Thanks again.
1: Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars,
0: or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.